begin reading with verse number 8. And I want to teach from verse 8. And we want to talk about he gave gifts to men. Ephesians 4. And I believe I'll start with verse 7. But 8 will be the main verse. And I'll read down through 14. But unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. Wherefore he says, when he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. Now that he ascended, what is it? But that he also descended first into the lower parts of the earth. He that descended is the same also that ascended far above the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come in unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And we henceforth be no more children, tossed to and fro, carried about with every wind of doctrine, by the slight of men and cunning craftiness, whereby they lie in wait to deceive, but speaking the truth in love, may grow up into him in all things, which is the head, even Christ." He gave gifts unto men. So let, let's have a, a word of prayer. Uh, Father, we're grateful to have another opportunity to fellowship, to be able to look into the scripture. For a few moments, Lord, give us ears to hear. Help me to speak clearly, with clarity. Let this word encourage us and strengthen us. Thank you for bringing John and Jan safely back from abroad. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. The book of Ephesians is one of those epistles that is a joy to read because unlike some of Paul's other letters, Paul is not rebuking anyone in this letter for having done anything wrong. So it's a very good exhortation. There's a lot of good teaching, a lot of good good wise sayings in here. But in verse 7, in dealing with the fact that we Christians come together Knowing that we have one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God who's Father of all, he says in verse 7 that every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. So notice the connection between grace and the gift. Whatever God gives to you as a believer, he says this in verse 7 to every one of us. That means every believer in Christ has some particular gift. There has to be a grace that goes along with that gift in order for you to be able to to utilize that gift. Now, we know that grace is unmerited favor, but I also want you to understand that grace can be defined as a divine enablement. Because Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, I am what I am by the grace of God. So God's grace is transformative. God's grace changes your life. In fact, you hear people sometimes saying amazing grace, but there's nothing amazing about it if that grace doesn't change how you live. But if it does then that's a very good thing. So grace and the gift go together. And it's, it's like taking the, the image or the picture of the Old Testament tabernacle where you had all of the furniture and the different items in there and the silverware and, and the, the craftsmen who were filled with the spirit of wisdom, they made the cups, they made the Ark of the Covenant. But, but let's not forget that when a craftsman or even a potter who's working with clay on a wheel, he already has a design in his mind of what he, want the finish, what he wants the finished product to look like. So when he begins to fashion it and mold it and shape it, the, the ability 
is inherent in what he's making. So you don't craft a cup to do the job of a spoon. And you don't make a spoon to try to do the job of a plate. So as a, as a Christian then, when God gives us particular gifts for our lives, he gives us the grace that enables us to actually operate in the gifts. And that's the beautiful thing about the body of Christ. We're all different. If we were all the same and we all had the exact same gifts, then the next question would be, what's the point of having this person here? If, if they do exactly what I do and I do the exact same thing they do, then why, why, why are both of us needed, you see? So the gifts that God gives to us differ. And this is why he said, according to the measure of the gift, the greater the gift, the greater the grace. Now, the Apostle Paul, he had a ministry as a preacher of the gospel, but God had to give him a lot of grace to endure some of the things that he endured, and that was because of what God took him through. So verse 8 then says, he ascended up on high. Now, this is a quotation from Psalm 68, verse 18. And Psalm 68 begins with this, this phrase, let God arise and his enemies be scattered. And in that psalm, it's talking about God being a champion, a king that conquers and reigns. And his, his enemies and foes run in the opposite direction. And this quotation in Psalm 68, 18 says that when he ascended up, it said he received gifts from people. Paul uses it here to say he gave gifts, talking about Christ. But the reason the psalmist talked about him receiving gifts is because in the Old Testament, when a king conquered ancient peoples, he spoiled the peoples and he received from them wealth, their gold. Subject people very often had to pay tribute to the conquering king. And then what did the conquering king do with all of that? He did what David did. He shared the spoils with all of his people. So this is what Jesus did. Jesus came into this world, having left the throne of God, came into this world, born as a babe, to live amongst us. And when he went to Calvary, Colossians says he spoiled the powers and principalities. That means the power of death, hell and the grave was in his hands. And, if, and uh, Isaiah 53 speaks about how the Lord then divided the spoil with the strong. So that's us, the Christian people who believe in God. When Jesus ascended to heaven, he shared with us of the victories that he attained when he was on this earth and he died on the cross. So verse 8 talks about the captivity that was led captive. In ancient times, what did they do with the captives? They led them in a long train sometimes. And even in ancient Rome, they paraded the captive people before the people in the streets so that everybody could see who's been conquered. You know how embarrassing that would be? And when Jesus himself died on the cross, he himself became the victor over death, hell, and the grave. And this is why now in verse 8 he's able to give gifts unto men. He can give to us out of the abundance of all that he himself has obtained. Then the question comes, now that he ascended, what is it? Or what does it imply? But that he descended first into the lower parts of the earth. So he left the throne. God became a man. He was born in a manger. 
He descended from the, 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 the far above heavenly places, came into the lower parts of this earth, and was born as a babe. And so that phrase, lower parts of the earth, we can actually use another phrase from Isaiah 44, verse 23, and I'll read it. It says, Sing, O ye heavens, for the Lord hath done it. Shout, ye lower parts of the earth. Break forth into singing, O mountains, forests, and every tree therein. The lower parts of the earth. He descended from the heavens, came into this world, to where we are. But then there's also the aspect of the lower parts of the earth in the Old Testament where it describes those who've gone down into the grave. So Jesus did die. He was buried. And having literally been buried, when he ascended or rose from the grave and then ascended to heaven, then we can understand that the same one who came down from the throne into this world and brought about the plan of redemption is also the same one who ascended up far above the heavens, the skies, far above the heavens to the right hand of the Father's throne that he might fill all things. Now the teaching of the ascension, I think that may very well be one of the least taught subjects in, in churches. The ascension of Christ. Acts chapter 1 says, after Jesus' resurrection, he spent 40 days with his disciples. He was there teaching them the kingdom of God. And in his last conversation with them, suddenly he began to levitate. His feet went up in the air, his body went up in the air, and he was received out of the sight of the people. That's the ascension. The ascension is important for each one of us because it validates everything that happened from his birth to the crucifixion to the resurrection. When Jesus went to heaven, it was as the king of kings, and it's from there that he disperses all of these great gifts to each one of us. And that's why it was when he was received into heaven at the ascension that in Acts chapter 2, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit occurred. Now, the Spirit of God was at work all throughout the Old Testament, but Acts chapter 2 was something unique and special. And it was only after he ascended to the right hand of the Father that we end up with these gifts here in verse Number 11, because in the Old Testament, we don't read about apostles. In the Old Testament, we don't read about evangelists. We do have the verse that said, blessed are the feet of those who bring good news. But as far as a ministry of evangelism, we don't see that. Verse 11 speaks of several different kinds of gifts that the Lord gave. First of all, it mentions the apostles. So we know Jesus had 12. He prayed all night in Luke chapter 6, came to the foot of the mountain after he was done praying, called all of his disciples together, and of all of those disciples, he chose 12, and he appointed them to be apostles. The word apostle in the Greek, of course, means someone that's sent. Now, we use that today in English, and our word is missionary, because our English word comes from the Latin word, missio, which means to send. So the, the, the Latin and the Greek word mean the same thing. Somebody that's sent out to do a particular thing. And so the 12 apostles were sent forth. Paul is called an apostle. Barnabas is called an apostle. Timothy and Silas are called apostles. And the scripture is quite plain that when a person goes forth into that ministry, I think it's 2 Corinthians 12 and 12, it says, Truly the signs of an apostle were wrought among you in all patience and mighty signs and wonders and deeds 
So the, the idea of there being an apostle today like the 12 apostles of the Lamb, that's important because it, that's impossible because there's nobody alive today who actually walked with Jesus in the flesh. But there are a lot of people today that have been sent by God to do his will in the earth. When we say someone is an apostle or someone might be a missionary who's doing an apostolic work, we are not talking about someone who, whose church gives them a badge and sends them to the conference in the other state where they become the missionary delegate from their church so that they can vote at the next convention. That's not what we're talking about. We're, we're talking about someone who has been divinely sent by God to do a work. Now here, the next one then mentions the prophets. Now you find these all throughout the Old Testament. Some had dreams and visions, some did not. Some did miracles, some did not. John the Baptist was a prophet, but the Gospels say he did no miracle. Zechariah had dreams and visions. Daniel had dreams and visions. Elijah and Elisha and Moses were involved with miracles, signs, and wonders. A prophet, as you can see from what we know from the Old Testament, a prophet could be a male or female. Because when Jesus was born, Anna, the prophetess, was there to speak about his birth to people around Jerusalem. Moses' sister, Miriam, was a prophetess. Huldah, in the Old Testament, a lady who was married, was a prophetess. And let's not forget that Philip the Evangelist in Acts chapter 21 had four daughters that prophesied. That prophesied. And Joel the prophet in the Old Testament, he said in the last days, God would pour out his spirit upon all flesh and your sons and your daughters would prophesy. You see? So the, the operation of God's spirit is not based on gender. It's not gender. The next one here is evangelists. Now we, of course, when we think of evangelists, we know that that's someone who tells the good news and shares it and spreads it. And that's all true. But our, our image and our picture is of Philip in Samaria in Acts chapter 8. Because today, most large-scale evangelism today is based upon a preacher gathering a lot of pastors together to sponsor a meeting for him or her. And then if they get all of these people together in a big, a big auditorium or arena, then that becomes, that becomes their, their evangelistic meeting. Now that, that is a way to do it. But you know, the, the best evangelism is when someone like Stephen goes into an area and just one-on-one -on -one begins to share the gospel and preach to people. Miracles, signs and wonders. Demons cast out of people when Philip was in Samaria. So evangelism is something that a person can have a gift or a ministry for that. And the Bible even says for Timothy, who was a pastor in Ephesus, do the work of an evangelist. So pastors should be able to share the good news, spread the good news. We, we, we've tried to do that all the years we've been in Nebraska. I don't know how many little towns we've been in preaching. And the meeting we've got coming up in two weeks where we go down into Plainville, Kansas. That, that again, is going to be another outstanding meeting. Not sponsored by the churches, but something we're doing to preach the gospel to people. So it's an individual thing. If, if you understand the gospel 
well enough to share it and articulate it, you should, and you should expect God to help you when you do that. So whether it's on a street corner, in a car, in your living room, in the back of the church, or whether you're out in the field somewhere, you can talk to people about God. Uh, There was a, a gentleman in Kampala, Uganda, many, many years ago, a young man who was raised in a little village where they didn't even have any electricity hardly. And he had a sister that lived in the capital. And so the sister had told him, you come to the capital and you live with me, and you can have a, get you a job and you can go to college. Well, that's what he did. He came to the capital, but when he moved to the capital, his sister died. She died of AIDS. She was a prostitute in the, in the, in the city. So when she died... He didn't have a place to stay. He didn't have any way to take care of himself. But he was walking down the street, and he passed a, a church, and he heard the singing in there, so he went and sat down. And afterwards, he listened to the man as he told the story of Jesus. He didn't know anything about that story. But at the end, he did give his heart to the Lord, and the pastor led him to salvation. Well, this, this young man, he, he became such a good worker in the church that he was leading a lot of people in the community to the Lord. And they gave him a little job cleaning around the church, giving him a little bit of money here and there. But he kept saying to the pastor, Pastor, you need to come and tell my family about Jesus because my family lived way out in the bush. And, and if what you're saying is true, that we need Jesus, uh, we can't have another generation of my family die as they're worshiping all of these African gods and ancestral spirits. And that that pastor, he kept trying to put it off and put it off. And finally, he couldn't. He told the young man, he said, look, you get all of your family together. And I'll go and I'll share the good news with your family. So I don't know, 45 days or so later, they all got in a, a, like an SUV, made the trek nine or ten hours out into the bush to go visit this man's house. And when he got there, uh, all of the family was there. Because in parts of Africa... If, if the, the, the dad, the patriarch, calls for a family meeting, then everybody has to come. You're just obliged to come. So they were all there, and, and then the, 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 the pastor, he was introduced by the young man. The young man said, this is the pastor that led me to, to Jesus, and I want him to tell you about this religion. And the pastor got up, told the story of Jesus, and then after he was done, about 25, 30 minutes later, the father stood up and said, okay, we'll all accept Christ. The dad, he, he just made the decision for everybody. He said, we're, we're all except Christ. And, and so the, the whole family came and, and became Christians in that meeting right there. Well, later on in the evening, when they were just sitting around talking, the, the, the pastor asked the, the dad, how, how could you just accept so easily? And that, that dad said to him, he said, many, many years ago, he said, I used to have a little little tiny shortwave radio. And he said, in that shortwave radio, I was working far away from here in another village. And he said, I'd listen to the news at night. Because, I mean, Uganda is one of the colonized countries by Britain, so they understand English. He said, I'd, I'd listen to the, the news and stuff at night. And he said, one night they had a preacher that came on, and the preacher was talking about Jesus. And he told everybody listening that they needed Jesus, but he never told us how to become a Christian. And he said, I've waited for three decades for somebody to come and tell me. He said, look, my parents have died without this knowledge. My grandparents died without this knowledge. I waited for somebody to come, and finally 
you came. So when people do evangelism, we can't think of the cash register attendant or the janitor or the school teacher or the bus driver as just someone who's doing that job. We have to think of them as a soul that needs to know God. Because God help us if they pass away and then we're left with the memory of saying, I just wish I would have said something. So an evangelist is not just the, the ministry of someone who's just traveling, holding revivals in different churches, but think of yourself as a person who's called to do the work of an evangelist. Yeah. God gave gifts to men. The next one, then, he, he talks about the pastors, and then he speaks of teachers. Some people like to combine the two into one, but I've met many pastors that aren't good teachers. I've certainly met teachers that are not pastors. So the, the two, the pastor then is a shepherd. And the teacher, of course, is someone who's able to take the complex and simplify it. And that's a gift. You, you do understand everybody's not good at teaching. You know that? You ever, you ever had somebody in the family try to, try to teach you or your nephew or nieces how to drive? That's why even when it's time to learn how to drive, there are certain people in the family you can't have teach you. Because for, for, for them, the, the, the whole session, somebody's yelling. Or they just don't know how to communicate what it is, what it is that you're, you're supposed to do. So a, a teacher then is someone who's going to share the word of God. And Barnabas and Paul were teachers, according to Acts chapter 13. A pastor, of course, is somebody that has to have sheep and somebody's going to love his or her sheep. John chapter 10 says, Jesus made the statement, my sheep know my voice, and to another they will not listen. So just like somebody herding goats, or just like somebody with uh, a ranch or something like that, there's no doubt that the animals get accustomed to the voice or voices of the ones that feed them and care for them. A pastor is someone who is going to love the sheep despite all of the unpleasantries that may go along with people that are sheep. You know, everybody's got different personalities. I've, I've told people, I said, this pastoring thing would be great if you just didn't have to have people involved. <laughs> this thing would be amazing. But you, you have to have people. And anytime you have, anytime you have more than two personalities, then you've got to be able to love people. And, you know, the scripture says love covers a multitude of sins. And so this may be one of the reasons that some pastors change churches every three or four years, and they do it so rapidly. Because they don't, they, 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 they don't, they don't fall in love with the people and the people don't fall in love with them. I asked a couple one time, I said, what's, I said, what's, what's the length of time that's too long for a pastor to be in a church? And the people told me, the day I don't like him anymore, he ought to be gone. I said, wow, that's, 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 that's too long. Yeah, that's, that's too long. So the pastor then, pastors are different. Pastors' styles are different. Everybody is trained differently i've in in a lot of places when i travel and hold meetings it's quite common now for 
pastors to be dressed down when they uh, teach and do services and stuff like that. But on, on Sundays, I still do a suit and tie. And I've had people say to me, why do you, pe- people out here don't dress like that. Why do you dress up like that? It don't have anything to do with the people out here. It has everything to do with how I was trained, see? how I was brought up. And, and, and I've, I've often said I, I never want to be out in public and look like anything that people, it would cause people to be ashamed of me teaching them the scripture, you understand? So the, the, the role then, as Jesus describes it, of, of a pastor is to know the sheep and to pay attention to the, the wolves that try to come in and the robbers that try to come in a different way. And that does happen. Scripture says in verse 13 here, excuse me, verse 12 here, that the role of all of these ministers is to perfect the saints, to bring about maturity. Now, if you spend a lot of time in church and a lot of years in church, you should know more about God after all of those years than you did when you started. Mm -hmm. But there are people who have gone to church for decades, and after decades, still don't know a lot about God. Doesn't have to be that way. And typically, I'm going to say that, that it has a lot to do with, with the ones that are teaching in the church, the pastors. Because if a pastor isn't feeding himself, then it's, it's, you, you can pretty much expect he's going to starve the people. He doesn't have anything to give. You know, it's like a bird that flies out and and then comes back to the nest, and then the little baby birds start opening up their mouths, but the mama bird has to have something to put in there. But if mama's been out there going to these different places and doesn't bring anything back, it doesn't matter if the mouths are open. And there are many people in churches that are hungry. They want to know about God. They want to get close to God. They want to learn, but they don't have somebody who's trying to perfect themselves so that they can in turn try to perfect the people. And if a preacher isn't mature, a preacher certainly can, he can inspire maturity in people if he doesn't know the word of God himself. So the, the teaching then is for the perfecting of the saints. That means that all Christians in every church, they could wear a sign that says under construction. Yeah, we've all got attitudes and personality traits and things that need to be perfected. I mean, look, there's only been a handful of people that's ever been perfect on this planet, Adam and Eve, two of them, and they failed. And then it was Jesus, of course, and, and he was crucified, and, and then my wife. Okay, and then my wife. And, and you see what God did to her, he stuck her with me. So we just, <laughs> she's just here, here we are. Okay, the, the perfecting of the saints for the work of the ministry. The Christian has to know there is a specific assignment for him or for her. Every Christian has a duty. Now, it could be, maybe your, your ministry might be prayer. See, I've told people, when you retire, you've got a little bit more time on your hand, why not spend time praying? You don't have anywhere to go when you get up in the morning. Develop a prayer list. Just begin to just, just write some names down if you want to. And just every, every day, just pray for the names on that list. And you'll find sometimes the names on the list get longer and longer. About 17 or 18 years ago, there was a gentleman in Red Cloud. He was in his 80s. And I used to get together with him at 5 o'clock in the morning for prayer two or three days a week. And he had a list. I'm telling you, he had a list of 800 names on it. And he prayed 
for each of those names every single day we got together. Yeah. And I think that's, that's an important ministry. Well, maybe, maybe you might feel like your work is just go around and, you know, pick up groceries for somebody, help clean up behind somebody, need some help. Maybe give somebody a ride to church. Maybe ministry to kids. Whatever it is, the role of the ministry should be to help develop people's ministry gifts so that they can do the things that God wants them to do. It's for the work of the ministry. Ministry is work. It's not always easy. It's a lot of work to do some of these things. And visiting folks and caring for people and feeding the hungry and visiting the afflicted, looking out for the orphans, these things are very, very important. And the the, the way you determine the greatness of a church isn't just by how well a preacher or a teacher is. To have a great church, you've got to have a great congregation. You've got to have people that desire to work. You have to have people that are mature. You cannot have a, a, a great church and have a congregation filled with people who are easily offended, and I'm mad because they won't let me be, in, be chairman of the chicken frying committee. Yeah, I'm serious. I can't, I can't believe they painted the Sunday school room and nobody even asked for my permission. Well, there's another verse right up under that. We're not going to ask you for your permission. See, Right. These kinds of things will keep people from ever developing. And, and of course, to, to do ministry, to be a pastor, to be a leader in any kind of a church, you've got to be willing for confrontation. Now, if you don't ever want to confront people, you don't want to deal with stuff that's going wrong, you should never be in a position where you've got to lead people or have people under you. But if you have people under you, then you have to be willing to talk sometimes about things that you may not necessarily want to talk about. That's a matter of maturity and perfection. That's what it is. And it's for the work of the ministry and, of course, therefore the edifying of the body of Christ. We know the word edifice refers to a building, so edifying has to do with confirming and establishing people on a strong foundation. So when we say teaching should edify, it means teaching should build you up. See? Jeremiah was a prophet. His word rooted and uh, tore down and then built up and reestablished. Edify doesn't just mean that you just have to be positive. And say things that are nice. Sometimes you have to deal with issues that are that are very difficult. And in, in a local church setting, of course, then these things become uh, very important. The, the edifying of the body of Christ. I, I've told you before over and over again, with, with all the Bible studies that, that my wife and I have done in all the years we've been out here in Nebraska. I'm trying to think now some of these Bible studies. We, we did a Bible study for nearly a year out in Hayes Center. That's a long drive from here out in Chase County. We used to do one in February. For about six months, we were in Beatrice before I ever got started here. Then just a host of other places where we've gone. For about a year, I went to Bladen, and the, the Methodist church there asked me to come and do a Saturday night service. So I was preaching a Saturday night service for them. I was getting them people filled with the Holy Spirit. All kind of stuff was taking place. These people were all on fire fire for God. And, and I've thought plenty of times, there are pastors all over Nebraska that should be writing me letters saying, thank you. You've taught my people to tithe. Taught my people to love. See? 
taught them, taught them the word of God. Verse 13 in Ephesians 4 says, Till we all come into the unity of the faith. Now unity is an interesting thing. Now we know Jude says we should earnestly contend for the faith that was once delivered. But it's quite obviously, quite obvious that we all interpret that faith differently because in America alone we got over 2,500 different denominations. And that's not counting around the world all the different different Catholic sects that you have. So then what, what is the unity of the faith and what is it that ministers can do to produce the unity of the faith? Well, number one, as a pastor, the only people God has called me to unify are the people I pastor and the people I teach. I can't unify folks in another place. The second thing is we've got to understand what the, what the faith is there. Because since we have so much difference in, in America, because, of course, you can be Southern Baptist, you could be Northern Baptist or American Baptist, you could be Free Will Baptist, might even be Primitive Baptist, you could be Progressive Baptist, Missionary Baptist USA, Missionary Baptist of America. You could be Full Gospel Baptist Convention. So we got a lot. I mean, you could be Methodist, United Methodist. You could be, you could be Free Methodist. You could be Wesleyan. There's no end to all of this. And, and all of, of, of the different groups honestly and earnestly believe that we're all teaching the truth, you know. So here's what I, what I tell people. Wherever you are on this planet, there are certain things that are non-negotiable. Virgin birth of Jesus. The fact that he lived without sin. That he died on the cross in our place. That he was buried and then resurrected. That he ascended to heaven as God. See, th- those are non-negotiable. If you meet any preacher or any Christian who says, well, you know, I just kind of struggle with that resurrection. I'm not really sure that's bodily or that really happened. You, you ought to saturate that place with your absence. Yeah. Because it, it's important for you to know that. The unity of the faith. Till we all come into the unity of the faith. The whole point of everything that ministers are supposed to do is to bring unity of the faith. So if we had a painting on the wall right here, and, and let's say it was a, well, it didn't even have to be by somebody popular. But if we had a painting on the wall and I said to everybody, okay, now tell me what's the most striking feature in that painting. All of us probably would identify something different. However, if we all had taken a class on painting and portraits and art and all of that, and we were taught what to look for, then we probably all see the same thing. The classroom produced unity of thought, Unity and in interpretation, which then in turn becomes unity of the faith. So for some people, they can't produce unity of the faith because they don't try to unify the way people think about it. And it's difficult when you have confusion in that regard. The scripture says, and of the knowledge of the Son of God. So we have to acknowledge he's the Son, but we have to have knowledge of who he is in order to produce the unity that's necessary for us to walk together. Amos asked the question, can two people walk together if they're not in agreement? No, they can't. But 
two people can walk together in agreement when it comes to their faith in God if they believe the exact same thing. So the, the role then of the, of the minister is to try to combat so much division and schism which could lead to splits. You see, splits. You're trying to, it's, it's, it's almost like trying to herd cats. Trying to pastor a church. Yeah. Because everybody thinks differently about different things. And some people won't tell you openly and publicly what they think about something, but they'll tell people behind closed doors what they think about. And, and so many times the pastor's running around with a fire extinguisher. He's putting out fires because he's trying to hold the thing hold the thing together. And the time that he could give to teaching, he's got to give to visiting somebody who's now stirred up some more gossip, see, or something like that. So the, the, the thing here in verse, thir- verse 13 is that we're all trying to come to the stature of the fullness of Jesus, the place of maturity in his life. Now, what, what kind of maturity did he exhibit? I'll tell you. Here, here's a man that let one of his own disciples kiss him on the cheek when he knew his disciple was going to betray him. Most of us wouldn't let anybody that close to us. Here's somebody that would, that would hang up on the cross and say to God of the Roman soldiers that, that, are, that, are, that have nailed him, their father forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. That's maturity. It's not mature at all for you to walk around with a chip on your shoulder and as soon as somebody makes you mad, then you're ready to get upset and you're going to give them a piece of your mind and you're going to cuss somebody out and then you're going to slam the phone. Anybody can do that. A kid can do that. But maturity is to be able to handle those personalities that rub you the wrong way and you still are able to conduct yourself like a Christian. As the Old Testament says, iron sharpens iron. He said, Lord, how long am I going to have to put up with this person so they don't bother you no more? Yeah, it just doesn't, doesn't bother you. As long as it's bothering you, expect them to be there. Yeah, so just they keep calling you on the telephone and you wonder why they won't stop calling. I told you the greatest invention since printing was caller ID. Told you that. You can sit there and you can look at it. And that's how I know when I... When I, when I give you that phone call, I say, yes, yeah, on that third ring, they're staring at that number that says Pastor Darrell. They're trying to decide whether they want to answer the phone now. Yeah. So verse 13, the, the, the stature and the fullness of Christ, verse 14, so that we won't be like children. How do children act? Children are stomped. They'll throw tantrums. You don't even have to teach an infant to throw a tantrum. That little infant have, have a, little, a little rattler in her hand or something like that. They're playing with it. And then you take that thing. And I mean, that little infant will just tense up. You know, at, at the Old Testament called a stiff neck. You know, just get all stiff. How are you going to do that to me? I mean, they can't even talk. But they know how to communicate to you that they're unhappy. And the scripture says, God doesn't want us to be children tossed to and fro. So the image now is that of waves that are carrying stuff back and forth. So rather than you being carried back and forth by the force of the current of of, of, uh, strong and weird doctrines, he says you ought to become sturdy enough in your belief that you have an anchor that keeps that from happening to you. Carried about with every wind of doctrine. Little kids 
very often get led off into deception by somebody who offers them candy. Been a lot of kids kidnapped that way. Somebody pulls pull up to a, a playground and says, Mama's going to be late, but I'm here to pick you up. They don't even know who they are, but they have some candy. And sometimes one by one, they'll climb in the car and, 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 and terrible things happen. God says he does not want that kind of a thing to happen to you on a spiritual level. But to be strong enough in, in what you understand about Scripture, that when someone is teaching something, you can listen to it and you say, that is error. So let me give you some examples of error. <clears throat> some years ago, there was a, uh, a, a lady that was holding meetings down in or all around North America and some pretty big meetings, and they were saying in these meetings that feathers from heaven were appearing. And, uh, and so, I mean, these little feathers just appearing all over the floor as she's praying for people and stuff like that. And so she went down to Tulsa, and, and she was there. And so Tulsa had a, had a pastor down there, a guy named Willie George. And Willie George decided to take his, his, his television crew to go in and to kind of see what's going on. Now, you can fool a lot of things, but you can't fool that television camera. And by the time he and his crew finished filming that, and, and, and then they found out what was going on, they sent it on up to Lester Summerall in uh, Indiana and found out that the lady, she, she had feathers up in her sleeve, and she, when she'd walk behind a bench or walk behind a, the piano, she'd pull one out and just drop it, and then all of a sudden people would look at that and they think, oh, my God, feathers from heaven. I mean, you got to laugh to keep from crying, to think that people would, would believe that. Uh, one of the times when I was out holding a meeting in uh, California, I was with some pastors, and we were talking about something that was going on in Southern California. And, and people were saying that, that in these meetings, people were able to smell revival. They said a certain fragrance was attending the meetings. And they said whenever God was showing up, they said it was almost indescribable, but the fragrance was amazing. And I, I told those preachers, I said, you drive them crazy with a skunk in there, then, if, that, if that's, that's what they're, they're, they're thinking. Well, when, when it comes to the teaching of the gospel, the teaching of the word, you, you have to be able to know what the real says to identify the false. Understand that? So 20-some-odd years ago when I... Went through Marine Security Guard School, Quantico, Virginia. And part of our training was there with FBI Academy. And they teach in that academy that the only way you're going to be able to identify false money or fake money, you have to master what the original says and looks like. And if you don't know what this says, then somebody can come along and they can tell you they had a dream or a vision and before you know it, they'll have you going off to Africa or have you married to somebody you're not even supposed to marry simply because they believe this is what you're supposed to do. You have to know the truth and, and, and train on the truth. And You can see here in verse 14 again, and we'll start winding down. It says, with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness whereby they lie in wait to deceive. And I hate to tell you that, that there are people who do lay awake at night and dream up ways to get money out of your pocket. Yeah. The, the 
one time when I was, one of the times when I was over at uh, Lester Sumrall's studio, I was preaching the telethon that night. And I was, after, in between the break, I had asked uh, his son, Pete, I said, Pete, why in the world do you guys have a little country preacher like me coming to preach on this thing that's going all around the world? And, of course, then we were doing the, uh, the Bible prophecy with, with Hilton Sutton at that time. But, but Pete said to me, he said, because, Daryl, he said, when you, you get up there and you preach, whether it's for our devotionals or whether it's on the telethon or on the program Bible Prophecy Unravel, you, you don't get up there and you promise everybody everything. You just preach the gospel and then you pray for people. And then you have some people that say, look, if, if you just send in $20, we promise you everybody in your family is going to be healed by tomorrow night. So they said, it's nice to have somebody that's not trying to fleece God's people. That's what they said. You understand? There are people that lay awake at night and dream up ways to get your money out of your pocket. They'll think, oh my goodness, if I could just get a coffee mug with my picture on there, these people would buy it. It would be so anointed. If, if I could just get some T-shirts with my pictures on it and, and give it to them, they'll be so happy to have it. I mean, it won't cost me but $1.25. They'll pay $40 for it. believe they have the anointing. So here's where we'll stop. Verse 15 says, speaking the truth in love. That's the correct way to do it. You don't want to be mean. You don't want to be arrogant. You don't want to be self-righteous. The truth has to be told. Now, there are a lot of ways to tell the truth, and you can tell it without being loving. There are a lot of people who do speak the truth but don't do it in love. And Some people will speak it in such a way that it's, hurtful and harmful, but what we're after is growth, individual growth. Let your speech be seasoned with grace. Let your words be used for edification. A soft answer turns away wrath. And so that's why when we speak the truth, we want to do it in a loving fashion. Amen? Amen. Yeah, without it, oh my goodness, you know how hard it would be to be a Christian, that's why a lot of people won't go to church because somebody said something to them and hurt their feelings. I mean, it could very well be they were immature, see? But, but still, it doesn't help if somebody over here, they, they say something that, that, that isn't nice, you know? you know. Somebody come up and they say, I'm having a difficult time. I'd like to know, you, you think the church would help me pay, pay my bills? And then you, you respond, can't pay your own bills? What's your problem? I mean, you know, that's, that's not the correct way to do that. But to, to do it in love, that's the key, to do it in love. Okay, let's have a word of prayer. Father, we're grateful tonight for the fact that you've given gifts to the body of Christ. We are so happy that we can be involved with the teaching of your saints, the word of God. Father, it is our prayer that you continue to lead us, guide us, Continue to help each one of us grow in grace and in knowledge. We thank you for the anointing of the Holy Spirit, your power, your blessing that's on us. And as we look more and more into the scripture, help us to grow, Lord. These things we pray for in Jesus' mighty name. Amen, 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 amen.